There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello again, folks. Welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars podcast, a slightly unexpected episode for you in the run up to New Year's Eve, but not quite the last of the much loved miniseries that has been War of 1812 month and three quarters, if we're being quite honest. It's been fantastic. We've done a lot of social history along the way. Yes, we've done some military, but it's I've enjoyed this kind of focus of looking at it in a slightly different kind of vein. And we're going to do exactly the same thing again today because we're going to look at impressment within the context of the War of 1812. One of those things that was certainly a kind of catalyst for the outbreak of the war, whether or not it's the single most important cause, I think is something that we'll discuss over the course of the next hour. But to help me unpick this, I am joined once again by the excellent Nick Kaiser. Nick, as you will know, is a Napoleonic commentator. He's a teacher in Canada, and he is author of Revenge in the Name of Honour, the Royal Navy's quest for vengeance in the single ship actions of the War of 1812, which is available from Hellion. You'll have heard Nick on the show very recently, helping to add to the level of knowledge that has come out of War of 1812 month. But today, he's got a standalone episode. I should actually say we did do a recording a long time back on the Naval War of 1812. So folks, I will stick a link just like I did last time. I will stick a link to that episode in the show notes, in the descriptor to this episode so that you can go and catch up on that one. We won't just repost it, um, but it was a fantastic one. Nick, great to see you again, my friend. Merry Christmas. Um, how are you doing? Merry Christmas. I'm doing very well. Thanks again for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, we're going to dive in. We're going to start with the basics. <clears throat> Impressment, it's a word that we think we know. Certainly, I think I know what I think it means, but I'm sure there's a much more kind of complex story behind it all. So let's start with the sort of the what's, the hows and the whys 
what is it physically how does it work and you know why does the government feel that this is necessary during this period not just within the uk but also around the world mm-hmm. uh well i mean so at a basic level and and you, you're probably correct in what you think pressman is your, your listeners probably are as well it's a form of conscription used by the royal navy that's very basic it's conscription at sea the draft at sea so we'll start with why that's needed um and we have to think about the, the fleet, the Royal Navy. When the Royal Navy is mobilized for war, you know, during the late 1800s, uh, early 1800s, late 1700s, it fielded hundreds of ships, um, thousands if you count the, the smaller sloops and uh, bomb catches and all the rest and transports. Some of these ships need as many as seven or 800 men. So essentially an infantry battalion. When the war, uh, Navy went to war in 1793, it therefore needed an immense body of men to sail and fight its ships. The peacetime Navy in 1790 employed about 16,000 men. By 1797, well into the French Revolutionary Wars, it employed 120,000 men. It's a huge increase on mobilization. Hundreds of ships go from being um, expensive storage spaces and dockyards to active ships of war. They need to be manned. On top of that, um, there are high rates of mortality and desertion on these ships. Every year uh, during the war, deaths in battle, deaths from injury, disease, shipwreck, and desertion result in about 10% of the Navy's manpower disappearing, 10% annually. So every year, just on, from the get-go, 12,000 men are really needed to replace losses. That's already an immense challenge. Even worse, the Navy needs to expand growth Napoleonic Wars. For most of the conflict, Britain is without any allies with any amount of naval power. And at the height of Napoleon's power, he can call upon the navies of France, Spain, and Holland. So the navy's ever expanding, it always needs more men, always needs more ships. And face of that problem, the navy was never able to fully man its fleet for willing volunteers alone. Now this is one um, common misconception about impressment and the Royal Navy. There always were many volunteers. And for most of the Napoleonic Wars, they represent a majority of those serving in the fleet. But they're never enough. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that naval pay is abysmal. By 1797, naval pay hadn't increased in over a century. So I, you, and all of your listeners, I'm sure, are feeling the effects of inflation right now. Imagine a century's worth of inflation without any increase in wages. That's a staggering problem. And many merchants at this time, indeed also the ships of the American Navy, pay better wages than the Royal Navy. And the other problem is that, you know, compared to the Royal Navy, uh, service on merchant ships is safer. Uh, service on whaling ships or on privateers are more lucrative. You know, Britain has this immense maritime world, thousands and thousands of ships of all types, and they all need men. And they're all competing for a relatively limited number of trained, able seamen. So impressment was needed to man Britain's wooden wall. Some foreign impressment had been going on in Britain for you know, quite literally centuries. Uh, it was very common practice in Elizabethan times, um, but it really took off as the size of the Navy expanded during the 18th century. Um, the most basic practice was of individual ships sending out gangs of seamen and officers, usually the most loyal men on board a ship, to literally go into towns or board uh, merchant ships and just 
round up British sailors. And this has been occurring for centuries. Um, during the 1700s, more systematic and organized methods are developed as well. The Impress Service, which is a dedicated force of Royal Navy personnel, is established, and it has you know dedicated groups of men in all the major ports of Britain, whose job is to find sailors. Regardless of the method, these press gangs are authorized by British law to detain any trained sailors of British nationality for employment in the Royal Navy. Now, this was and always had been controversial. Now, the British state, you know, is proud of its rule of law, its ideals of liberty. Um, so politicians found it impressive, embarrassing. Even the Royal Navy found it embarrassing. But given the scale of the problem of manpower, it was an evil of necessity. There's um, a great deal of, deal of historical debate on impressment. Um, traditional views was of a very violent, brutal system where press gangs would strike fear into local communities. They would grab landsmen and salmon alike. There'd be a lot of you know, brutality in the actual act. More recently, uh, historians have argued that it was a much more benign process, relatively free from violence. My thoughts, and they're dependent on the work of other scholars, I haven't done any work on this specifically, um, seems to be that impressive falls somewhere in the middle. It was not the cartoonishly brutal practice that you would see uh, you know, in Victorian popular culture, but it did, it could and did result in violence at times. I'm still getting over that 10% desertion figure. That's, that's horrendous. So the army, during the Peninsular War, the army's worst desertion stat is actually when the war is over and desertion spikes to something like 1.2% of forces deployed, of troops deployed in the Iberian Peninsula. So nothing in the grand scheme of things. Often it hovers somewhere between half a percent and something pathetic like 0.05 of a percent. So we're talking minuscule numbers. Granted, it is bigger during the, as we discussed in other episodes, during the War of 1812, where you've got a figure of something like 4%, I think, being not uncommon. But that's a long way from 10%. Is this... Yeah. So um, and I might have misspoken. I hope I didn't. The ten percent is is everything. So it's death from battle, um, injury, shipwreck, and desertion. I don't know what the desertion rate is. I imagine it's much higher than the army. And the reason for that is trained sailors were incredibly valuable, and they had a lot of options. There were always ships who wanted to take on crew. Um, so it was very, you know, when you're a sailor in the Navy, you ha always have an incentive if you can to get away because you're probably going to find better employment somewhere else. Whereas I don't suspect that, you know, Army soldiers were that valued in upper industries in the same way. Uh, but I don't know what the actual rate of desertion is itself, but I, I do imagine it's higher than the Army. Is there any ability for escape? Because I'm conscious that the... Um, the militia has a system where you can kind of get out of it, either by getting somebody to replace you just voluntarily, or you can have a situation where you pay somebody to take your slot if you get called. Is there an equivalent when it comes to impressment, or is it just, look, you know how to sail a ship, you're coming with us, son? That's absolutely it. Um, <clears throat> if you have now, if you can prove to a captain that you have no maritime experience, technically, they have to let you go. And most captains will do so. But, you know, it's up to the sailor to prove that. 
um, if you have any, if you are a British subject and you have any amount of maritime experience in your past, that's usually signified by the slang you use, the way you speak, tattoos you might have. Um, in addition, you know, other sailors might have saw and recognized them. There's no way of. How do people respond to basically being kidnapped and told, this is your life now, and if you don't like it and you run away, we can shoot you. And if you don't do what you're told, we will flog you, beat you, thinking of starting here, going back to that discipline in the Navy episode. <laughs> this, is, this is not... It's a very different way of doing things to how we're used to today. And I'm curious about whether or not people kind of resignedly accept their fate or whether there are kind of counter responses to this. And I guess it depends from individual to individual, but I'm just curious what your sense is of that. So current thinking um, tends to describe sailors' attitudes to impressment as an unfortunate annoyance, an occupational hazard. Many hated it. Uh, many took great lengths to avoid it. Um, but for the most part, British sailors accepted that it was a hazard of the trade. Um, and another general consensus is that usually they accepted their lot once they were impressed. It's hard to say too much on this because we just don't have many accounts from the perspective of common sailors. Um, we actually, I think we have more accounts from British soldiers from this period than you know Jack Tars. But that there are some. And they suggest that impressment was, again, viewed as that occupational hazard. Um, you know, it sucked to be pressed into service, but, you know, it's a hazard, the occupation. Sailors moved throughout this world all the time. They moved from ship to ship, to from one nationality to the other, in and out of the merchant service into Navy ships, uh, privateers, whalers. Um, and some sailors we know, um, you know, they, they were... Um, pressed, they spent time evading the press gangs, and then would later participate in the press gang if they were caught and brought into a ship. There are, there's one example I know of for sure, uh, I'll mention later, where a man who was pressed at one point in his career later participates in the press gang on the ship. It, it really was viewed as part of the world they were in. It sucked, many hated it on a philosophical level and a personal level, but once you were pressed, that was it. That was your job. It, it was just part of that fluid maritime world for the most part. Then again, ma many had different views. It's all an individual basis, but for the most part, it was a really, really crappy part of the job. I guess there is that sense of what the hell are you going to do about it anyway? We're sticking you on this ship. We sail at dawn. <laughs> you know, who are you going to complain to? The captain? The captain's really not going to listen to you. And um, one kind of pool of discontent I guess back home is of course the families and I'm curious about this on two levels one is whether or not families have an ability to turn around and go what the hell but you know there is a, a legal precedent for this which is why they're able to do it at all as well as a historical precedent in that it's been going on for a heck of a long time in port towns and cities the other thing that I'm curious about is whether or not family is an excuse to escape. So if, for example, you're married or, you know, you have a number of children and there's this question mark of, well, what the heck do you expect me to do about providing for my family? If you're going to then put me on this boat, I'm not going to get my pay 
particularly often, I'd imagine, because it's not as though ships sail around with huge quantities of bullion stashed on them. And even if you get it handed to you, it's not much use to your family back in England anyway. So how does that kind of play into this? And is there this facility to escape based on, you know, marriage, kids, mm-hmm. all the rest of it? And do people then exploit that? To, to my knowledge, there wasn't such a loophole. Um, you know, perhaps if you were quite an, an age sailor, you haven't been to sea for a decade or more and you have a bunch of kids and you could appeal to your captain and maybe you get lucky. But I, I, don't, I don't think that was a realistic expectation. Um, now, families in general of, of, of sailors and native Jack Tars, they were provided for somewhat. Um, they received some of their, their husband's or their father's pay uh, to keep them going. It definitely wasn't an easy life. It wasn't certain that they would receive the money. Um, so on a financial level, it really sucked. And especially if you were impressed. You know, if, if, you, if your husband volunteers for Royal Navy, well, he's going to get a, um, a signing bonus, most likely, a financial bonus that he can then give to you. Um, and he's probably going to be more likely to be given surely at some point in his career. If you're pressed, you don't get that signing bounty. You're probably not going to get any um, shortly until you've proven that you were loyal. So that was definitely very hard. Um, and another real problem is that many of these sailors can't read or write. So once you're pressed on board a ship, you know, your wife might have no idea where you are. And certainly once you sail, they won't hear from you unless you have someone very kind on board who can read and write, who can do it for you. <clears throat> so, you know, husbands and, and fathers would disappear for months and years on end routinely in, in this life. And that's why many, many sailors do not start families when they're young, because of just how crazy this maritime life is. You, you could get on a boat in Bristol and you could be in base in Halifax for 10 years. And there's just no real way to, to you know, predict that. One really tragic thing, too, is... Uh, a lot of impressment actually happens when homeward bound merchant ships are stopped just as they're entering a British port. So you could have a ship full of sailors, you know, let's say, you know, 10 of them have families at home. They're, they've been away for a year, sailed to the India and back. They're very excited to get home to see their families. And then they're immediately pressed, you know, days away from reaching home. And the family would have no way of knowing again, unless the sailor is able to get some word to them. And that requires either them to be literate or someone on the ship who can write for them. And of course, the wife to be literate as well. Do you get people just kind of disappearing and I guess never coming home? Because the whole point about naval life is that there are many dangers, not just combat, which admittedly is the exception rather than the norm, but you're talking at the age of sail, health and safety really is not a thing during this period and ships are hazardous environments at the best of times you know storms all the rest of it um do you get those kind of cases that somebody went out you know and got drunk one night got pressed and nobody ever saw them again because you know next thing they were i don't know found themselves on a ship which then six months later ends up at the battle of the nile or you know insert equivalent story here yeah, well, I mean, for one thing, sometimes entire ships disappear, and that happens throughout the, the age of sail. 
um, even like well into the 20th century, there, there are a few cases of ships just completely vanishing. Um, so yes, absolutely, there, 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 would, there are cases um, of men with families disappearing. I don't know any off the top of my head, but just has to have happened given the realities of you know maritime life. I, d I don't want to give the impression that maritime life is like excessively more dangerous than life on land. Um, it certainly was quite chaotic, unpredictable, and you know, a ship is a dangerous place, but it, I think there's a danger in when we talk about it as historians of overselling that to some extent. You know, sailors did not board a ship and expect, you know, I'm going to die soon, you know, most likely. You know, most would come home, um, but not everyone. And sometimes that's because they were injured, lost, or sometimes they just, you know, find a new life somewhere. I guess the other, uh, I'm conscious that we do need to kind of keep momentum going with this, but you you talked about something earlier that was really interesting, which is about sort of the culture and almost the ethos of British society during this period, everybody talking about how jealously Britain guards, you know, notions of liberty, rule of law, um, habeas corpus, you know, things that have been really integral to the British psyche, quite frankly, since the glorious revolution of 1689. You know, these are things that the, the Brits pride themselves on during this period, and they hold them up as counters to everything that's happening in first revolutionary and then subsequently Napoleonic France. And it's very much this look, aren't we so much better than the rest um, kind of scenario that's, that's played out, you know, in the press, in, in the coffee houses and so on. So how does society at large deal with the fact that what they're doing is the exact inverse of all of that is there this sense of well someone's got to take one for the team is there any kind of indication of how people square the circle and kind of brush that under the carpet or does it just get ignored you know just people people just go well impressment yeah it's unfortunate but let's move on um i mean that's the thing it, it is a political embarrassment throughout the period um politicians hate it um the navy does not like it you know in a perfect world they would man the fleet with willing volunteers. And, and again, most of the men in the Navy are willing volunteers for whatever reason, but there's also this recognition. The fleet cannot sail at the scale that is needed without impressment. Without impressment, the Royal Navy could not have challenged Napoleonic France and survived the Napoleonic Wars. So there's that recognition. So it's it's a... And an evil necessity, it's tolerated uh, because it's necessary. And a good example of this is actually um, in Nova Scotia, which I'll talk more about um, in a moment as well, because um, the residents and the political establishment there really detest impressment, really despise it. <clears throat> and whenever the Royal Navy shows up and unjustly, you know, you know obstructs the liberties of Nova Scotian sailors and press them without no cause, the entire community would rally against the Royal Navy. But Nova Scotians also permitted a controlled, limited press gang activity in the province when it was judged to be necessary for manning the North American squadron. So when it was in you know, the national interest. So again, I'll tell you later, but Halifax hated the press gang, but tolerated it when it was necessary. So this is really interesting. One last thing before we, we start to talk about some of these individuals and their experiences. 
you get a, a shortage of men and that's a given. What about officer, the officer corps? Because we have this very traditional perception of lots of um, families being quite eager in some cases. And Rory Muir has done some great work to demonstrate some of this attitude of if you have a younger son and you're a, a wealthy gentleman, but you're not that wealthy, Navy life can be beneficial on a number of levels, not least you take your 12 year old son, you get him onto a, a ship as a midshipman and off he goes and you don't have to provide for him. Um, the son in the meantime gets a career. He's got that career for life. Should he so choose? And there are prospects of advancement. Yes. You've then got a whole thing of half pay, but do you have points at which the, the Royal Navy looks at a number of officers on its books and goes, we're going to run out of officers here if we're not careful. And if so, how do they deal with that? I know it's a sort of separate issue to impressment because to my knowledge, you don't end up with impressed officers, but is there some sense of we need a strategy here to make sure we've got enough young men to fill the vacant positions on these ships? Because as you say, if you're going to uh, expand a, a Navy to almost sort of 10 times its original size, you still need officers to man those ships. You can't just fill them with your sailors, able seamen and what have you. So I'm, I'm curious about how that works. So, and actually there's, that is a question that now never considers because there's, it's never a problem. Um, there are always plenty of young gentlemen, bad term used in the Navy to refer to anyone who aspires to be an officer, do not have to actually be gentlemen by class. <clears throat> there are always enough of them. And you always think of the logistics here. And you think about a film like uh, Master and Commander, where there's like a, a half a dozen or so young boys who are apprentice officers. And you know, I, I forget like HMS Surprise would actually have probably close to a dozen. So twice as many young gentlemen. Most would grow up and become you know, senior midshipmen, master's mates. Many would become lieutenants. And every ship would have, you know, two, three, four, five, even six times as many lieutenants as captains. The, the Navy did a very good job of generating enough officers. In fact, too good of a job because, and this happens at every major war of a period, there'd be a huge hiring spree and promotion spree of officers um, into the ranks of lieutenants and, and commanders and captains in the first you know, half of the war. Second half of the war comes around, Navy's still expanding, but it gets to the point where you just have physically too many officers. Um, you know, at the height of the Napoleonic Wars, there are twice as many uh, uh, commanders as there are sloops for them to command. So any one time, 50% of your com commanders are unemployed. Um, and then a smaller number of captains and, and lieutenants, that's always a problem. And then when peace comes, you know, in 1816, I think something like 90% of the lieutenants on, you know, the Navy list were unemployed. That is quite a figure. Um, I'm very tempted to rabbit hole on, on that, but we'll resist that temptation because uh, we're here to talk about impressment, so we should stay focused. Um, so impressment, what do we know about them? Do they just sort of disappear into the machinery of the Royal Navy, as you say, you know, trying to get accounts from these, those who aren't literate? It is a huge challenge. Um, or can we trace some of their experiences? I mean, um. 99% of them, yeah, they disappear into the machinery of the Navy. Like the most you get from most Jack Tars is you can like find their names on different, on the, like different ships, you know, 
you know, Mustard books, but how many, you know, Jack Tars, how many John Smiths are there? <clears throat> it's hard. There are a few historical accounts that have survived and they're really fascinating ones. Uh, two that came to mind. Um, I have one, I don't have the other one. William Spavins, um, he was a Jack Tar in the mid 18th century. Um, <clears throat> and you know, he was pressed into service and a surviving account describes his real distaste for the process, but he also describes you know, later in his career, joining press gangs and helping to impress uh, other sailors. So he is someone who has a personal and philosophical disagreement with the process, but again, accepts that you know, his ship can't sail without it. It's now his duty to participate in it. Um, another um, excellent autobiography is uh, job, Jacob Nagel, um, <clears throat> who recounts his experience throughout his career of evading and running from press, press gangs, of being caught by press gangs, um, we know he's successfully pressed once, but he also describes like many different attempts at evading the press gangs, from hiding in cupboards on ships to slipping ashore at night. Um, it's very common for especially merchant ships who have compartments built into them to hide sailors. Because if you have like, you know, four excellent seamen on board, if you can keep them, you're going to. Some of these compartments were excellently designed. Others were absolutely pathetic and they didn't fool anyone especially press gang officers who did this quite often. Yeah, I can imagine you get to know kind of the, the tricks of the trade after a while, don't you, and, and know the signs. Um, I'm curious about how widespread this policy is as well. You kind of alluded it, to it already in relation to Halifax. Um, th this is a, a British problem, right? But you end up with Americans becoming embroiled in it which tells you all sorts of things about how you end up with this kind of having an impact across the British Empire and potentially even beyond. Um, so I, I guess my, my first question is kind of, is it better or worse outside of what you might call the home islands? Do you, so you've talked about um, Halifax particularly. Is Halifax sort of the go-to place? Does Halifax end up being stripped of naval um naval recruits because there's this kind of sense of well if it's not in britain then perhaps we can get away with a bit more maybe we can push the boundaries a little little bit further so i can't speak to um you know the west indies or um you know gibraltar <clears throat> but i can speak to how it worked in british north america and i'll talk about two colonies and because they are polar opposite cases it really is dependent on the colony, the place in the world, the commanders involved, and the legal framework there. <clears throat> but the, 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 the important context here is um, 1708, and a law passed by the very new British Parliament, known as the Sixth of Anne. I'm not a political historian, but I assume that is the sixth law passed in the reign of Queen Anne of Great Britain after the Act of Union. Um, this law prohibited the impressment of sailors in the American colonies. So if you were an American co colonial, um, you know, under British law, you weren't liable to impressment. The Royal Navy could apprehend deserters from British service, but cannot impress American colonials. That's 1708. Now, this law was almost always ignored throughout the uh, following century. It's one of the factors that saw relations between the colonists and the British state break down. We dumped the American Revolution. 
but that that precedent is important. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk first of um, Newfoundland. So this is uh, now a Canadian province. Um, it was briefly an independent country um, before being recolonized by Britain um, in the 1930s. At the time, Newfoundland was really just like an extension of the West country fishery, um, culturally and economically. Had a very small settled population. Its workforce mostly consisted of sailors traveling to and from England with the seasons. That, that's the way all it was, it was a fisheries branch. There was no real local government in Newfoundland. Its colonial governor was actually just the commander in chief of the Newfoundland squadron, naval squadron. So there, press gangs were completely under control of, of the Navy, under the whims of the Navy, but they were infrequent. And they were infrequent because the squadron's tiny. Usually it's only a handful of ships. And usually they had no problem getting seamen to leave the fisheries and volunteer into the Navy. It was a really good place to be if you wanted to take on Malayan volunteers. By contrast, Nova Scotia, which is not too far away, has a very different political context. Nova Scotia, before the American Revolution, was known as the 14th colony. Um, after being taken by the French in the 1710s, uh, and its French Acadian population was deported during the Seven Years' War, it was settled by New England families. And they brought with them new English ideas about governance and rights. The colony remained loyal during the revolution and it's later settled by thousands of loyalists, but that political culture remains important um, because of those new English roots. Nova Scotia is really opposed to impressment and the local government uses its colonial infrastructure to control it. So the capital of Nova Scotia, Halifax, was the home of the North American squadron. This was a fleet that was always desperate for manpower. Especially in the Napoleonic Wars, they were probably the lowest priority of the big fleets because there was virtually no French presence in the area. So they didn't get reinforcements from England in terms of manpower. So they could only recruit locally and that required no press gangs or volunteers. But because of the Six of Anne and the legal framework that exists that the Royal Navy is now has to pay attention to because they learned their lesson in the 1770s. They, the fleet can only send press gangs into Halifax River ports under a warrant issued by the Nova Scotia Legislative Assembly. And even then, Nova Scotians are, for the most part, exempt from impressment. So between 1793 and 1805, 13 warrants are issued by the government uh, that allow the Royal Navy to conduct um, the press gangs. And these warrants control how long press gangs can operate for and how many men they can grab in total. And because Nova Scotians have a lot of exemptions uh, from impressment, it's not uncommon for a majority of the press gangs captures to be released afterwards. <clears throat> it gets really bad in 1805, this is the height of the crisis. Um, it's so the squadron's so undermanned that they're sending ships to Newfoundland to take on crew because they just, just can't get them in Halifax. Um, but in 1805, the squadron is desperate, and the commander in chief, Vice Admiral Andrew Mitchell, sends press gangs into Halifax without a warrant from the local government. This um, results in a violent riot in the town. The government and the Navy are so spooked by it that no further warrants are issued for press gangs from 1805 until the War of 1812, seven years later. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. See, this, this leads me on very nicely to where I wanted to go next, which was to talk about resistance to impressment. So lovely little piece of uh, segueing for me there. Much appreciated. Doing my job for me. Um, there must be some entertaining stories um, within this, but also, I guess, also some quite heartbreaking ones. Talk us through, you know, the ones that you've come across. Unfortunately, uh, um, I don't know of too many, I, and they, they must be out there. And if your listeners know of any, you know, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to hear about some of them. I know, I know general trends. I know that sailors would, if they wanted to avoid the Royal Navy, you know, they knew where press gangs were. Press gangs were... Occasionally patrolling the streets in a British town, or they were uh, stopping merchant ships as they go in and out of British ports. So, you know, they would hide in cupboards on merchant ships, they would slip ashore at night, hide in inns, alleys, try to flee the port town while the Navy was, the Navy was there and only come back into town when the Navy was gone. Um, and, and some, when they were encountered a brass gang, they resist with violence. Um, and like in Halifax, this occasionally results in, you know, real know violence so the situation in 1805 in halifax was that um the navy because of the manpower crisis was the worst it had been for the entire war they requested a a warrant from the nova scotia government and nova scotia government was um perceptive again they they recognize that it, it's necessary so they they offered them the most liberal uh press warrant they'd ever offered for a, a fortnight they were allowed to um, impress an unlimited number of sailors, as long as they're legally entitled to impressment. The commander-in-chief, though, Admiral Mitchell, protested, saying that a fortnight was just not enough time. He needed a longer allowance. And the assembly denied this because they said there's no, there's no precedent for, for a longer impressment. There's no real you know, evidence that it'll be effective after a fortnight. This is what you've got. This is the best we've ever given you. Calm down. And... At this point, you know, the Admiral and all of his captains in Halifax, they are desperate to try and impress sailors. Because there's a lot of sailors in Halifax. I mean, probably half of them are not actually Nova Scotians. And they know we're there and they want them. So rather than take the, the olive branch, Admiral Mitchell sends in press gangs anyway into Halifax and several other ports. And it, it's a major riot ensues. One man is killed and half a dozen are injured at least. Fascinatingly, though, this is you know mid-1805, just like a couple months later, news arrives of the Battle of Trafalgar, of the victory. And the same town that a couple months ago had been the subject of violent protests over impressment was fully consumed by joyous celebrations of the British victory. 
know, these protests were not anti-British. This is not an anti-British town. They were anti-impressment specifically. The same people who would go, you know, into the streets to fight against a press gang to protect their you know, fellow sailors, fellow citizens, would go in the street and celebrate Nelson's victory. And they did. It was a tremendous celebration that lasted weeks and you know, days and weeks following the victory. So how do we get from this to the context within which during the war, or the run-up rather, to the War of 1812, <clears throat> what the Royal Navy is doing here ends up effectively rubbing the USA up the wrong way. Why do, and this is a dumb and obvious question, but I'm sure you can shed more light on, onto it than the way that I'm phrasing it. Why, why is the USA affected? You know, how is it that American sailors end up being drawn into this and, and then the US end up kicking off about it? Well, I mean, again, the basic level, you know, the Royal Navy is impressing American citizens. That's, what, that's what's happening, but it's, it's complex. Um, but that's a grievance that the war hawks of the American Congress used to sell the war to a very skeptical country. Um, and in the lead up to the War of 1812, there were two really explosive, quite literally explosive confrontations about this. In 1807, um, HMS Leopard, uh, a very old, outdated 50-gun uh, ship of the line, um, fires on an unsuspecting and unprepared frigate USS Chesapeake because they had heard that there were British deserts on board. The Chesapeake was not prepared for action. They had no reason to be prepared for action. This is 1807. So they are forced to strike because they're, they're, they're fired on. Um, four men are, are pulled off by the British. Three actually were British deserters, but the fourth probably was not. And, and this results in huge outcry in the United States. A few years later in 1811, um, HMS Guerriere apprehended an American ship, merchant ship, and impressed several men out of her. Again, supposedly all you know, British subjects. This quickly resulted in huge hysteria in the United States and USS President, one of the Americans' heavy frigates, is deployed to search for Guerriere. What the heck they were going to do when they found Guerriere, we don't know, because this is a time of peace, but she was sent out to find this frigate. President did not find Guerriere, however. She instead found the much smaller sloop of war HMS Little Belt. What followed is not really clear, but we know that a firefight ensues. Both ships fire on each other. And poor Little Belt is ridiculously outgunned here. She is a 20-gun ship, and President is the heaviest frigate afloat in the world. 56 guns, very heavy guns. Both captains claim the ever fired first. I, I cannot imagine that Captain Bingham of Little Belt would have done so. It'd be absolutely ludicrous. But uh, whatever case, it happened and, and men died. Not many, but you know, men died. This event inflamed the British, just as Leopard had done so to the Americans in 1807. Um, the British accused the actions of President and her captains cowardly because she'd attacked a much smaller ship. She had mistaken, supposedly, for Guerriere. So when the War of 1812 does break out, Captain Decrez of Guerriere has the slogan, not to the little belt, painted onto his topsails. Just to be sure, a president wouldn't make the same mistake twice. So why are the Royal Navy stopping American ships, even like ships of the American Navy? Because it wasn't a secret. You know, thousands of British-born sailors served in American ships. Pay was better. Life was safer. You know, America was only briefly at war during this period, very briefly against uh, France and the Quasi-War and then um, the Barbary States. 
for the most part, it's, it's a peaceful existence. You have better pay. You're theoretically safe from French privateers, British press gangs. So why wouldn't you serve in the American, uh, in American merchant ships and American Navy? The British claimed at the time that 20,000 British subjects were employed in American ships. The US government claimed it was actually 9,000, which is still a staggering sum. It was about one fifth of the entire maritime workforce of the United States. Now, it's important to clarify a couple of legal matters here, because um, th this is a, a deep philosophical difference in the two countries. So first off, under British law, only British subjects can be impressed. So if you're from Britain, Ireland, and around the empire, but it's limited if you're from British North America, you're liable to impressment if you have maritime experience. So two, by extension, natural born American citizens cannot be impressed. Officially, the Royal Navy cannot impress Americans. Um, but there's some problems with that. One, it was usually up to the press man to prove that he was American. And that's difficult because you might not have papers on you. Papers might not be believed. This is a time when it was very easy to get American citizenship, ridiculously easy, which anyone, I know people who are trying to go through American immigration system now, will tear their hair out at the thought of that because it's really hard now, but it was ridiculously easy at the time. Um, so during this period, historians think 10,000 individuals with some claim American citizenship were impressed. 3,000 are later released because they can prove that they are not British, they're in fact American, but 7,000 who have a claim to American citizenship remain in British service. Why? Well, if they were American citizens, might not be able to prove it. Um, but more problematic, um, if an American citizen had been born in Britain, in Ireland, in Canada, Nova Scotia, they're still entitled to it. Subjecthood is not the same as citizenship. In the British you know, legal framework, if you are born a subject of the king, you remain a subject of the king until you die, even if you leave the British Empire. American citizenship, on the other hand, is something that you, as you know, free men, can choose to accept or revoke however you like. So many of these individuals, you know, these thousand individuals, were legally American citizens under American law, but under British law, they're also British subjects. So that's where this crisis really comes from. It's this philosophical difference between American citizenship and British subjecthood. And it is worth saying that impressment is just one part of a wider policy that's hacking off the USA and antagonizing them at this point, right? Absolutely. It, it is closely linked with a much broader policy towards the United States, which Americans bitterly resented. So even after independence, the British were always treating the Americans with, I mean, contempt, really. They were they thought of the Americans as, you know, this citizens of this backwater, quasi-vassal state, um, they considered them crass and vulgar, and they considered their government essentially basically a doomed experiment in a form of radical British ideology. And that's what it was. Um, and this is in, this is in the context of the broader war to Napoleonic France. So in 1807, um, you have the collapse of the would be the Fourth Coalition, I think, um, and Britain is is still at war with Napoleonic France. Napoleonic France cannot, you know, challenge the Navy at sea. They respond with the continental system by embargoing British trade with the continent. Britain responds by intensifying its economic blockade of France. So it becomes an economic war. 
And so in 1807, the British issue a series of orders in council, which basically set the framework for how this economic wave is going to be conducted. Um, they forbade British allied and neutral shipping from trading with the French empire. Now neutral is key there. To accomplish this, they authorized British warships to stop and search all shipping attempting to access the European market. Ships which did not comply were liable to seizure. This includes American vessels, because it explicitly says that neutrals are under this authority, which from the United States perspective is ridiculous because they're not subject to British law, but the British don't really care. Yeah, this so. is the point where, you know, for all that I do bash Napoleon for trying to dictate the economic policy of an entire continent with the continental system, the British are absolutely playing the same game and being completely awful about the whole thing quite frankly um and if you're in the usa shoes you can absolutely see why this escalates do we have any cases of sedition from impressed americans over this kind of discrepancy of um you know legal definition because you have a situation where you could actually be impressed prior to as an american born in a british colony or, or born in britain you could be impressed prior to the outbreak of the war and then find yourself in a situation where you're now having to fight your fellow countrymen in a naval force that you never wanted to join in the first place. So do we have instances of this kind of tension kind of leading to sparks and um, expressions of discontent? So, and again, I don't, I don't know of any specific instances. I'm sure it must have happened. Um, I'm sure, like, if, if you protest it to your captain, you know, your captain probably is not going to report it. But if your listeners know of anything, please let me know. I'd love to hear it. I do have an example of the opposite happening, however. So early in the war, um, a British-born sailor on USS Essex under Captain David Porter, he approached his captain and said, hey, look, I'm a British subject. I don't want to fight against my country. Uh, you know, you were great to serve under, but I, I respectfully want to, you know, leave your service. Um it was actually pretty easy to leave American Naval Service because they had, you know, they always had plenty of recruits. So it was a much freer system than the British system. Um, the crew, however, really quickly turns against this guy because they, they feel like he's portraying, you know, their righteous cause, free trade and sailors' rights. And they petition their captain to make an example of this bloke. They want to tar and feather him. Um, not in the lethal sense, but, you know, tar and feathering. And David Porter says yes. And he lets the crew tar and feather the, the poor sailor. He um he manages to flee the ship. He seeks refuge with the local police and it explodes, you know, it, it gets into the papers. It's a big scandal. Um, Porter himself reports this to his boss, the Secretary of the Navy. He offers up the story. Um, his his letter implies that he didn't think there was any problem with this behavior. He's rebuked pretty handily by the secretary because it was you know, quite appalling. Um, and word of the spreads, this is right at the end of the War of 1812, and it reaches Halifax, and it's you know quite outrageous people there. Um, and very soon after, a very inflammatory challenge appears in Philadelphia newspapers, supposedly written by Captain Yeo of the Royal Navy, um, then commanding HMS uh, Southampton. He later would go on to command British squadrons on the Great Lakes. In this challenge, Yo demanded that Porter in Essex come out to meet him and his frigate uh, so that the injustice of the tarred 
Jack Tarr could be avenged. Uh, and so that he could, and I quote, I can break my sword over your damned head. I mean, that's not exactly conciliatory language, is it? Uh, we did discuss this, I believe, didn't we? Um, in relation to single ship actions during... Well, we did, yes. Yeah, uh, it's a fascinating story. So we won't, uh, we won't repeat that for folks, but people, this is why you want to go back and listen to this episode because it's an incredible um, story. And again, you're doing my job for me because this leads us onto the next kind of section of this, which is about US responses and how the US protests against this policy. And we've talked about, you know, this is something that the hawkish uh, politicians in Washington can seize upon. But there must have been diplomatic discussions over this, because this is fundamentally a diplomatic incident prior to the war breaking out. So how does the USA turn around and go, oi, this isn't on, stop it, or else? And what's the UK response to that, which I'm guessing, well, I was going to be flippant and say, I'm, I'm guessing the, the response is, look, you know, get lost, matey. But there is a, a certain irony in, in this whole thing, which is that the British are on the cusp of repealing the orders in council at the point at which news arrives that the US has declared war. So I'm curious about how that actually plays out in reality. So, and, and, and bear with me listeners, because there's uh, some politics that are important here. So at first, in 1807, you know, the Americans very quickly issue formal diplomatic protests, um, like very forceful protests. They are, they are pissed off um, at their ships and citizens being seized. Uh, in the short term, these diplomatic challenges are a complete failure. The Brit like, they do kind of threaten they might go to war and invade Canada, but the British can, you know, they have spies in America. They can see that the fleets are terrible safe. They don't have any reliable troops. And in 1807, no one thinks there's going to be a war. So Britain does extend an olive branch, and they agree to pay reparations to released American sailors. So if they impress someone who can prove that they're not a British subject, they pay them a limited amount. And they agree they will stop seizing American warships. So Chesapeake will not happen again. But the British do not relent on yours and council's you know, right to search neutral merchants, nor impress British subjects. So that's unresolved. The Americans then try to join the economic warfare game. They issue an embargo on food exports to the British Empire. Congress is betting that Britain will suffer about these exports, and Nova, especially the West Indian colonies, maybe even Nova Scotia, will really suffer because it's a very connected maritime trade world. Um, but they overestimate just how reliant Britain is. And unfortunately, it's, uh, it's poorly timed because it happens just as Spain switches sides in the war suddenly Latin American markets are open to the British. So rather than you know, harm the British economy and supply of food, it probably is just a boon to British commerce because now merchants who are no longer have to compete with Americans when they're you know, within the British market. Yeah, there is that very, very much that sense of, sort of this is an opportune moment, isn't it? And you know, if the US wants to engage in some, in a sort of tit for tat trade war, of sorts, well, hey, th these new markets have opened up and the British have really wanted to get their hands on the South American markets for a heck of a long time. Um, so the, the coincidence, coincidences of that are quite beneficial to the Brits in this. But we do get to a situation where the UK does 
fold effectively and it does decide to repeal the orders in council what's the reasoning for that is it just that it's quite obvious that this system isn't really working or is it genuinely part of an attempt to put the genie back in the bottle if you will and sort of look if we if we deal with this then perhaps we can kind of smooth everything over and stop this war and, and that will be the end of it so that that is why they do it this happens though because of the change of political leadership in summer of 1812 a disgruntled merchant marches into parliament and shoots the prime minister spencer Percival. Purcell was quite hawkish when he came to foreign policy policy of the USA. He's the architect of the Orders in Council. He was quite keen on it continuing. He saw the benefits outweighing the, the negatives. His successor, Lord Liverpool, however, is not that such a hawk. He prioritized the cooling of relations, and so he extended the olive branch. Um, on June 16th in the House of Commons, Lord Castlereagh announces that they are going to repeal the Orders in Council. June 16th, this is announced, 1812. June 18th, Congress declares war in the United Kingdom. So, they hear of the, the news on both sides around the same time, at which point hostilities already begun on land and sea. So it, it literally is a matter of, of days in between. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? You know, a few days either side and, well, a few days earlier, effectively, or a few days later on the American side. Um, and you wouldn't have this conflict. So, well, mm. I say a few days, but you've obviously got the time for the news to travel. But nonetheless, you, you get what I mean. Um, I guess uh, this is a bit of a counterfactual, but would it have gone far enough to solving the USA's grievances? Because there's always a distinction to be made between what should be happening in theory and what actually happens on the ground. So is there this sort of sense that this would have made the difference? Had, you know, had impressment, had impressment just stopped, full stop, would that have been enough? Or actually, is is it the, the economic thing that's the key here? Which I guess takes me on to kind of my final question, which is how significant is impressment in the outbreak? Or is impressment sort of an excuse, something that fans the flames, but is subsidiary to the, the bigger political picture? Mm -hmm. This is still partly debated. Um, my own feelings, I'll talk about the counterfactual first. Um, let's say let's say the... Um, they hold off on the vote to declare war for another couple months and they hear or councils are uh, revoked, which would be a significant um, concession because that was you know, something that Americans really pissed off about. The war was never popular in the United States. There was a Warhawk faction in Congress who really wanted it. Um, New England politicians and merchants absolutely wanted to avoid it at all costs. Um, there's President Madison and, and his, um, his circle who were ambivalent on it from the beginning. You know, if the Orders in Council did not happen, I don't think it could have stopped the war. But I think it could have delayed, you know, that drumbeat to war for, for some time. And that would be important. Because in 1812, there's an opportunity for Americans. Britain, Britain's army is stuck in the peninsula. Uh, there is no you know, European coalition to speak of. Um, there's the beginnings of the war in Russia, but Napoleon is at the height of his power here. So the Americans bet, you know, we can we can use opportunity, take Canada, force the British to come to terms. Let's say orders and council are revoked, and Crespin's still a problem. Um, so it's very likely that the same 
demands for war would have come about, but maybe a year later or two years later. But what's happening in summer 1813, Napoleon has lost campaigns in Germany. 1814, he is gone. There's, I can't imagine they would have risked the war of Britain at that stage because you no longer have the advantage. And we, and we know from what happens, once the war in Europe is done, Britain sends a bunch of ships and thousands of men and you know they let you go and burn down the US capital. It's not a war that uh, Americans wanted to fight. They wanted to fight a war where Britain could do very little about it. In terms of how significant and present was overall, um, no, and, and that's that's always been the question. Is it significant in the outbreak or is it an excuse? And it's both. It is really significant in the outbreak of War of 1812, as the orders in council were. For many, it was the primary motive, uh, especially the few in New England who wanted to go to war. That was the only reason. And and, and that's reflected in, in the, the sloganeering of the time. Uh, many ships sailed with a banner saying free trade and sailors' rights You know, when they went to war. But it was also an excuse for many others. There were various political factions in the United States, the War Hawks especially, who had been clamoring for war with the United Kingdom for a long time over a more tangible grievance. And that was Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and the other British North American colonies. For many Americans, the work of the revolution was not finished. Canada had been invaded during that conflict, um, but remained a British possession. There was a miserable attempt at a rebellion in Nova Scotia that failed. This colony again was you know, extension to New England. Why shouldn't it be brought into the American Republic? The economic issues, the impressment, like these are all matters that could have been solved diplomatically if, you know, if they wanted to. If if enough um, American politicians wanted a peaceful solution, they could have fought for that. Difficult. They had not been successful at this point, but that issue of an unfinished revolution in Canada was always there. For someone like President Madison, I suspect that without impressment in the Lords and Council, he would not have gone to war. But, you know, there are many in Congress who it was it was an excuse. They wanted to finish that revolution and to seize upon the chance that they had in 1812. Britain seems to be losing a war. It will not be able to send many reinforcements, hardly any ships. And they don't really for the first you know, year of this conflict. They, uh, the North American Squadron, the British Army, get very little in terms of reinforcements until the situation changes in Europe. And I think this, this sentiment is expressed actually by Thomas Jefferson, a uh, former president. He writes uh, to a colleague in 1812, just after the war breaks out. And in it, he says that famous line, the acquisition of Canada this year, as far as the neighborhood of Quebec, will be a mere matter of marching and will give us experience for the attack of Halifax and the next, and then the final expulsion of England from the American continent. That tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it, in terms of some of the psyches uh, that are playing out in, in Washington during this period. And you do make a very good point that, you know, 1811, 1812, first half of 1812, at least, the idea that Britain is going to win this war is, is very much up in the air. It's very strong opposition back domestically, back in the UK to the war. You know, 1810, 11 is the point at which the the opposition party really manages to bite with some stinging critiques of the fact that the peninsula war is not really going anywhere 1810-11 is the stalemate and people will go well yeah 1812 you get breakout with salamanca but salamanca's in july 
before that, okay, so you've got Theodad, Rodrigo, and Badajoz. That doesn't automatically radically change the situation across Europe. Yes, it enables strategic options for Wellington in the Iberian Peninsula. It's not something that Napoleon is looking at and thinking, oh no, I better not invade Russia because two fortresses on the Spanish border have fallen. You know, and it's really interesting to just kind of take us out of that peninsula war kind of constant march to victory mindset and think about how if you don't have that knowledge of what comes next it's very easy to think in 1811 12 britain's gonna lose this one way or another something's just going to go wrong and also you've got um, big issues with economics which really bite over this period and and you also because the the good news you know of salamanca it's going to take about two months for Congress to learn about that. Um, you know, in Britain, like, I think they learn about the declaration of war about 45 days after it happens and vice versa for the appeal of the orders in council. So you're dealing with a two month gap of important news. So summer of 1812, Britain looks like it's losing and America is feeling really confident. Even though they don't have a good reason to be because their navy's tiny, their army's poorly managed, their militiamen are not reliable, but they see an opportunity when you take it. Nick, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for this. I know we ended up kind of morphing it into a discussion about origins, but actually that's fantastic because there was going to be an episode on origins and sadly I couldn't get a a guest to come on and talk about that. So you've managed to kind of cover something that I think perhaps might have perplexed some people who aren't familiar with the history of this conflict. So there you go, folks. You got two for the price of one out of this guy. So thank you very much for that, Nick. Folks, revenge in the name of honour, the Royal Navy's quest for vengeance in the single ship actions of the War of 1812 is available at hellion.co.uk. I don't know if there's a January sale going on at Hellion, but why not have a look? Um, It's a book that frankly is well worth paying the full price for anyway. So just go buy it. Why not? Um, I'll make sure there's a link to the Hellion page. Um, so that you can just go direct um, from the, the show description in the, the bit underneath where you're listening to this. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. I'm sure you're going to be back at some point. Um, I know you're very keen to participate in a sort of championship of the greatest soldier of the Napoleonic era. Uh, more on that in a little while, folks. But thank you for your time. I look forward to chatting again very soon. Cheers, Zach. I'm looking forward to being back. Folks, remember what I said at the start. Please remember to like, subscribe and share with a friend. Three simple things that make a huge difference. If you're particularly loving the show, why not head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five-star review and make sure you add a comment as well so that I can get your feedback on what's working on the show. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. You can get your hands on bonus content, hours upon hours of um, additional material, episodes on... Uh, the Marshals on the American Revolution, exclusive chats uh, on a wide range of things, in addition to a whole host of perks. Make sure that you avail yourself of those benefits if you are inclined. Obviously, I completely understand that that may not be for everybody, and whatever support you're able to give, it means a huge amount, whatever form it takes. Particular shout-outs. Those who are mentioned in dispatches are Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, 
Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gombau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, and James Fluick. The Admirals are David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals are Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, that's J.C. Kaiser, and the Legion to Scholars, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. A very Merry Christmas to you all. And as always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.